0: Wretched Radio begins in 3, 2, 1. What is the Bible?
1: Who wrote the Bible? The church will continue to be even more irrelevant when it quotes letters from 2,000 years ago.
2: Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so is where our trouble began.
0: This sounds to me like the voice of someone who really has an appalling ignorance of what the Bible says about itself and what Jesus said about it. It's time for Wretched Radio with Todd Friel.
1: Prepare to feel the love, whether you like it or not. This is Wretched Radio. Martin Luther once said, I'm translating this for you from German, the Christian life is like a drunken man riding a horse who falls off on the one side, gets back up and falls off on the other. There is a propensity in all of our hearts to be whiplash Christians. We will see a trend, particularly one that we don't like, and we will run as far away from it as we possibly can, never considering, wait a second, do we need to reject the entire concept that is the foundation for the current trend? I have one of those trends in view in particular. Nope, I'm not thinking of the Prayer of Jabez, the Purpose Driven Life, the Coney Movement. I'm not thinking of any of those big evangelical trends that were probably sold at a Christian bookstore near you. I'm thinking of the evangelical trend, and I use that term in a very broad sense, to focus on one attribute of God to the point that you and I hear this particular attribute and go, whoa, 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 careful there, pal. We're conservative Christians. The word and the attribute that I am thinking of, of course, is love. We hear so much preaching that turns God into a squishy, girlfriend who's just longing for a boyfriend or a boyfriend who's longing for a girlfriend and just is just so nuts about us and we hear that type of preaching and i think you and i might have a tendency to whiplash from that sort of bad preaching imbalanced preaching and want to run away from the love of god as far as we possibly can Ask yourself the question how you respond to a sermon where you hear somebody preaching about the love of God. And especially a sermon that focuses on the love of God for the entire time. You maybe find yourself going, Hold on, let's let's let's, let's, let's not turn God into lovey dubby deity. Let's let's make sure we're back to holiness. It's interesting. If you go back and read the Puritans, most likely the more popular books you will find from the Puritans are more of the severe books, more of the books that focus on the holiness of God, the wrath of God, about sin and about the devil and about the eternality of hell. We find those rather easily, and I think the reason for it is because we think that it's like we need a counterbalance to all this lubby-dubby speech that's going on inside of the church. So we go back in time to look for guys who did talk about God's holiness and his righteousness and his justice and his wrath. But if you read more of the Puritans, you might be surprised to discover they could be rather flowery in their depictions of God's love. They could be rather squishy sounding, rather effusive about the love of God. It's interesting we don't tend to go back and find those sermons or books because we've had enough of it. And we need to recognize that the type of love that is so often described in evangelical Christianity these days is a love that is really not a biblical way to describe the love of God, which is an agape love. It isn't. I don't want to say that it's emotionless, agape love, but it is not emotional. It isn't a love because, mm, I just really adore that kid. Mm, I just, oh, I just love that person. They just, just make me feel good, and I've just got warm, effusive feelings for them. That's not the way God's love works. It is a love that loves, that is kind, that is good, that is filled with mercy, toward those who don't deserve it, who have nothing appealing about them. He loves us because he loves us. He doesn't love us because of us. He loves us because he is love. And it is a self-sacrificing love. I think we saw that in Technicolor on the cross. God's love is a giving love despite the status of the recipient. That's what makes God's love so great. And it is not whimsical. It doesn't careen and whiplash all over the place in its regard to you. And that's a good thing because if you were loved by God because of you, you are in a very precarious position because if God loves you because of a particular attribute, the way you smile... Uh, your sense of humor, your wit, your intelligence, your accounting skills. If those were the reasons that God loved you, when those attributes start to diminish or downright tarnish, then God wouldn't love you anymore. But he does perpetually, constantly, because you are in Christ and God's love is not a Valentine's Day romantic kind of love. What I'm trying to say is God isn't air supply. That's basically what I'm trying to tell you. God, however, is love. And I wonder if you and I, maybe, just maybe, today, need to explore how we can perhaps return, if necessary, to enjoying the love of God. And I will even go this far, even though this is a risky word, so don't pillory me totally for this, but that we might Feel the love of God. Experience it. You say, are you talking mysticism? No, I'm talking about a cognitive process that should warm your heart. I am talking about the biblical method for understanding the love of God so that your feelings are filled with joy when you know that you are loved. Right definition of love. Is it don't you love being loved? Don't you don't you love isn't that why Hallmark exists? Well, to make Sentimental cards and really predictable movies. Hallmark exists because we like to express ourselves and people like to receive an expression of our love for them. Uh, that's, that's, That's just our bent. We want to be loved and it's okay to have that desire. God satisfies it totally and completely. But the question is, how does he do that? What is the mechanism that God uses to help us, again, air quotes, feel and experience the love of God? And the answer is not Christian mysticism. The answer is not found in Lectio Divina, centering prayer, contemplative prayer. And I might even throw in to the camp of practices to help us feel and experience God's love. Really repetitious worship music. That is. It, that has the same goal, so that you just feel, I just I, I just feel it. You, you kind of empty your brain or at least focus on one mantra, one repetitious phrase, so that you are not distracted with any other thoughts than feeling the intense, typically burning love of God. We reject those methods because they're not biblical. God always gets to our hearts via our brains. Would like to share with you a case in point from the Bible. Ephesians chapter three, has a very fascinating verse. Paul has been writing so that the Ephesian Christians can know the love of God. And he he, he goes about the business of basically hammering a nail into the wood by, by, by doing math that doesn't actually work. If you're familiar with spatial measurements, you know that there are three components, not four. Paul, as if to say <laughs> God's love is so huge, there's no way to measure it, that you would know the height, the depth, the breadth, the width. That doesn't make any sense at all mathematically, but it does in Paul's world because he's trying to emphasize God's loves his children and we should know it and it's not merely filling out a test and saying god loves me it is to know it experientially to epigenosco to really get it how does he do that go back to chapter one and you're going to see pronouns jumping out all over the place for the first three and three-quarters chapters of the book of Ephesians, see if you notice which pronoun is the subject and which pronoun is the object. From Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 1, 4, he chose us in Jesus before the foundations of the world. Verse 5, he predestined us to adoption through Jesus Christ. Verse 6, he favored us in the beloved. Verses seven and eight. He lavished redemption on us, the forgiveness of our sins. And on and on Paul goes to establish what? The truth about God. This is what he is like. This is everything that he has done. And after he goes through about 20 of the amazing things that God has given to us through his son, Jesus Christ, then Paul says, I've shared this with you so you can know the height, the depth, the breadth, the width of the love of God in Christ Jesus. The love of God is experienced. The process is cognitive. My question for you is... Have you, perhaps, ricocheted into a loveless ditch where you have not been experiencing the love of God? Perhaps now is the time to change that. This is Wretched Radio. So there you are on your Googler machine, trying to find a restaurant. What do you look for? Ratings and reviews. If it gets lots of stars, positive reviews, chances are pretty good you're gonna go there. Question, would you be inclined to go to a restaurant that had a 98% approval rating and rave reviews? I suspect you would. MetaShare, affordable biblical health sharing, has a 98% approval rating. 400,000 members strong, sharing one another's health care bills, saving billions of dollars over the years, saving families on average $500 a month. And 98% of the members of MediShare give it a hearty thumbs up. I encourage you to call them and see if MediShare is right for you and your family. 1-844-34-BIBLE. 1-844-34-BIBLE for MediShare.
3: Thanks for joining us on Wretched Radio today. Question, do you ever sit back and reflect on what your life was like 5, 10, 15, even 20 minutes ago? (laughs) Yeah, me neither. There's too much going on in the present to waste time reflecting on the past. And that, unfortunately, is the mindset of culture today. Of course, it's actually beneficial to reflect on the past, especially past episodes of Wretched TV and radio, which can be found organized nice and neat at Wretched.org. You'll also find over 40 amazing resources in the Wretched store, which coincidentally were all produced and written in the past. Imagine that. You can learn in the present from things produced in the past. And thanks to the ongoing support of our gospel partners, we have been able to continue talking about the greatest event that ever happened in the past, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We sure would love and cherish your prayers and support as we use the things of the past to affect lives in the present and future. So if any of this made any sense to you whatsoever, visit us online right now at wretched.org slash
1: donate. Good news, there are actually thousands of pastors in Germany. The bad news is they are not very equipped. Theological
2: training in Germany and in Europe is so needed because you don't really get any formal training, not in a church or anywhere else. Being at a TMI training center, probably the first time that you ever get any formal training, how to understand scripture, the church, and how to apply it in your own life.
1: Germany is not the only nation that has a drought of qualified pastors, but the Masters Academy International is changing that. One country at a time, currently in 17 nations, with mini seminaries, with graduates from the master Seminary, training indigenous men to rightly divide the word of truth. Would you please consider adopting your own seminary in one of 17 nations? Please visit wretched.org slash pastor, wretched.org slash pastor, wretched.org slash pastor.
0: Books of the Bible. The book of Job answers the question, why do the righteous suffer? When Job loses everything, his friends blame him. But when Job questions the Lord, he responds, God is sovereign and he is good. His ways are beyond our understanding. When you suffer, know that God is in control. He has his own purposes that you may not understand.
1: This is Wretched Radio with Todd Freel. What's love got to do with it? A lot. Hopefully. This is Wretched Radio. Have you, dear Christian, been experiencing the love of God? Or is it possible that your pursuit of the Savior has been exclusively cognitive without it ever being emotive? I know. You start talking about emotions and we get that same whiplash feeling. Whoa, 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 whoa. We're the thinking Christians. I agree we are the thinking Christians, but if we are the thinking Christians who never understand, feel, experience the knowledge that God is giving to us, we are just we're just not doing it right. The book of Ephesians I think makes this clear. Ephesians chapter 3 is a is a call for you if you have not been really focusing on the love of God, which is the rocket fuel that will ignite your desire to be sanctified. It is the fluid that will start your fires burning and not in the overused burning kind of way that we see today, which is one of the reasons that we really don't like to talk about emotions. That's all that the liberal people do. They, that's all. They, it's all emotive. I agree. And those emo- those emotions are, frankly, a house of straw. They cannot last. They need to constantly be rekindled because that is not the way that God gives us feelings. He does it through the cognitive process. Our challenge, of course, is to not merely amass that knowledge and then just let it rattle around in our brains, but as you know, the longest eight inches in the world is from your head to your heart. It's gotta get there, and Paul makes that emphatically clear after three chapters of telling us everything that God has done, knowledge, 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 so that you might know the love of God, the height, the depth, the breadth, the width of the love of God in Christ Jesus. It also happens to be fascinating. He breaks into a doxology at the thought of God. But you and I would do well to follow Paul's pattern To not just acquire information, but to have us actually enjoy the knowledge that we are acquiring, better stated that God is giving. The book of Ephesians starts with, he has blessed us. The subject is he, the object is us. With every spiritual blessing. He chose us before the foundation of the world, predestined us to adoption. He favored us in the beloved. He lavished redemption on us, the forgiveness of sins. Verse 9, he made known to us the mystery of his will. Verse 11, he has provided us an inheritance. Verse 12, he lets us praise and glorify him. Verse 13, he seals us forever with the Holy Spirit. Don't forget that. The seal that is on you is the Holy Spirit of God. You can't break that seal. Otherwise, you would be God. And I don't probably need to talk to your family members to know that that is true. He seals us forever with the Holy Spirit. He gives us a spirit of wisdom, verse 17. Chapter 2, verse 4, he loves us. He made us alive with Christ. In verse 6, verse 8, he saved us. Verse 10, he has prepared good works for us to walk in, to step into. He brings us near to him through the blood of Jesus too. 13. He brings us into his family 2:16-2:18 he allows us to have access to him 2:19 he makes us citizens in his household verse 22. He gives us his spirit to dwell in us. Verse 10 of chapter 3. He lets us glorify him. That's huge by the way. If your life is lacking purpose, there it is. You get to glorify God. He grants us bold access to himself chapter 3 verse 13 so that you will know the height, the depth, the breadth, the width of the love of God in Christ Jesus. You amass this knowledge so that you can know experientially, not in a mystical way, but that you can know the love of God and actually enjoy it. Alistair Begg, recently preaching on Ephesians chapter 3, spends a glorious 40 minutes speaking about the love of god in christ jesus that paul is so effusive about in ephesians chapter 3.
2: it is in light of that that he then says and i want you to know this this love of christ and i want to take just a moment uh, on this before we go into uh, this closing doxology Uh, paul uh, talks of this all the time. He's concerned when he writes to the church at Rome that he would understand that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And it is this love that he wants to see expressed within the context of the Ephesian church. And in chapter 2, he's made it very clear, chapter 2, where verse 7, uh, he has been Uh, looking forward to the the way in which in the coming ages that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Uh, So, from immeasurable riches of God's grace, he turns then to the unknowable dimensions of God's love. Let me just point out a couple of things that may help as you follow this up on your own. As he prays in this way to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge— you will notice, first of all, that this is not something that we are supposed to encounter, as it were, in our bedroom and on our own. But rather, verse 18, that we may have strength to comprehend—notice the little phrase—with all the saints. With all the saints. Who are these people? Well, those who have been redeemed, who have been justified, who have been set free from the bondage to decay and have been made new, men and women. In other words, it's just a small reminder, it's a passing reminder, but it is an important reminder that when God saves us, he, he, he unites us to Christ, and in uniting us to Christ, he unites us to one another. And in our union with Christ, we are inevitably united to one another. And it is in that union together that we make discoveries that may be uh, supplemented by our own personal journeys, but nevertheless, they are there to be discovered within the community of faith, and um, that is why the the, the the contemporary concern of the millennials. I just did a thing here in Dallas a few weeks ago with a professor at DTS. We spent an hour. He wanted to ask me why it is that millennials see no interest at all in church, why they, by and large, have got no interest in it, and and feel that they might just as well operate their entire program from their from their smartphone and uh, we talked about it for an hour. I'm not sure I was any help to him at all. But it, 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 it speaks to a number of things. It speaks to the radical selfism which our generation has embraced, and also the sort of extraneous notion of whatever this church thing is. That's why when we pray for one another and we pray for our churches, we pray that there may be that genuine sense of a shared comprehension of the love of Christ, that together with all the saints we are saying to one another, Come now, let us sing of a wonderful love, tender and true, and out of the heart of the Father above, streaming to me and to you. Wonderful love, out of the heart of the Father above. There is only one Lord, one faith, one baptism, uh, one God and Father of us all, and we are family." We don't have to get sentimental about this. We are family. Do you always get on with all your family? No, you have to say sorry. You have to say forgive me all the time. You have to learn to put up with each other, eh, whatever it might be. And it's true in the family of God. In Romans, uh, Paul says, and try as best as, as it is in your jurisdiction to live at peace with people. Do your best. So the church, you see, this is a digression, but I've started now. But the church, the church is not a group of people that I would naturally want to go on holiday with. The church is not a group of people that I would have hung around with in high school or would have hung around with me. Those of you who are clever mathematically, you know, nerdy engineer types, you don't want to hang with me. You wouldn't like me at school. And I wouldn't have been with you either. But now we're in the church, and we don't have, a, we don't have an option. <laughs> but we don't feel bad because we don't have the sort of cozy feeling about everybody. This is the sort of Bill Gaither thing. I'm so glad that you're part of the family of God, you know? Be honest. Sing it properly. I'm surprised— that you're part of the family
1: of God. It certainly is a digression.
2: If you're not surprised, you ought to be surprised. Take a mirror and start there by being surprised that you are in the family of God. And he has put us in here. Building a church is like building with bananas. They're all funny shapes, soft bits hard bits, the bit on the end that you can't do anything with. This is not This is not a linear progression of people who are perfectly framed. This is the strangest bunch of people you ever saw in your life, and we are the family. And together as that family, he says, I pray that you be strengthened in your inner man so that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints.
1: What? The love of God. While Alistair Begg's digression is over, his sermon was not because he spent the next 30 minutes talking about that love of God. Is that the type of sermon perhaps you need to hear more of? This is Wretched Radio.
3: This is Rented Radio, and I'm Jimmy Hicks. The Winter Olympics are currently happening in Beijing, though I'm not certain how many Americans are actually watching. But there are some subtle changes taking place right in front of our eyes, and they're so subtle you might not even realize it. One example comes in figure skating, where this year, for the first time ever, women aren't competing as ladies but rather as women. And that's something you might not even take notice of because it's such a subtle change, but it's one that will likely lead to a sweeping change in the future. By competing with the label women, it will make a transition toward allowing transgender males to compete in that division much easier because, you know, of inclusivity and all. While the latest on the public school front from Connecticut, a middle school is making headlines for an assignment given to eighth graders called Pizza and Consent. Students were given a handout telling them that pizza is a great metaphor for sex, and then the handout proceeded to instruct the 13-year-olds to list their favorite toppings, i.e. their sexual preferences. When pushback from parents came, the superintendent stepped in and claimed the assignment was inadvertently sent to the 8th graders and was a mistake. And while I don't believe a word of that, taking the guy at his word just leads to even more questions like, who was it intended for to begin with anyway? Because the stuff that was on this assignment was way too sexually explicit for any age child to get at school, even high schoolers. And speaking of public schools, let's hear now from one elementary school counselor.
2: I teach my elementary school students about gender identity. Some people
0: are girls, some are boys, some are both, some are neither. It's our job to use the name and the
2: pronouns that people ask us to use when we refer to them.
3: (laughs) So teach the kids to lie, basically. Just another example of crossing a line that teachers or school counselors have zero business crossing. There aren't infinite genders. There are two. He made them male and female. You know, if they would just teach basic science, they could clearly understand that. But I guess science just isn't as fun as the fantasy unicorn gender confusion corner. Still working on the name. Reports coming from the Pennsylvania Department of Health show the majority of the baby murder clinics in the state failed health inspections last year. And by majority, I mean nearly 60 percent of the murder mills. What type of infractions led to the failures? Well, failing to offer informed consent using expired anesthetic and filthy exam rooms and equipment. Talk about not caring about women. This is one of the most disgusting examples of that that I've ever seen. And speaking of baby murder, from the state of Florida, the House is reportedly about to pass a new bill banning abortion after 15 weeks. It's called the Reducing Fetal and Infant Mortality Act, and the bill estimates that it will save upwards of 5,000 babies per year from needless murder. The final reading of the bill is expected this week. More Wretched Radio is straight ahead. I'm Jimmy Hicks. Titles of
0: Christ. In the Bible, Jesus is given many titles that teach us about who he is and what he has done. Jesus is called the Friend of Sinners. While we were dead in our sins and condemned as enemies, Jesus bore our sins in himself so we could be reconciled to the Father. This is Wretched Radio with Todd Freeman.
1: Now, seriously, can you Feel the love. Tonight or any other time during the day, this is Wretched Radio. Who knew that Elton John was so insightful <laughs> that there are those of us in the church who perhaps because we are boomeranging from a lot of bad lovey-dovey preaching about God that we don't want to talk about the subject much. That's unfortunate because Paul in Ephesians chapter three makes it clear. That is precisely what we should be doing. That we would know the love of God that surpasses knowledge. What does that mean? It surpasses knowledge. First of all, Knowledge has to be there, which is the purpose of Ephesians 1, 2, and most of 3, to give us knowledge about God, his character, who he is, what he has done through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. We have that knowledge, but then as we surpass knowledge, we then experience the height, the depth, the breadth, the width of the love of God in Christ Jesus, that we would know it, not just answer the quiz question correctly about God's love or say, yeah, John 3.16 exists, but that we would know the love of God in Christ Jesus. Alistair Begg, I don't know where he was preaching. I believe in Dallas someplace, talking about gasp, the love of God, maybe just maybe you need to be put back on the horse if you're the drunken man who has fallen off of your Christian ride, and you're focusing on, and this is good to do, we, we do focus on these things, the holiness, the highness, the otherliness of God, the simplicity of God, all of those attributes should be studied, but they should all lead us to the same place, that we would
2: experience the love of God. The love of Christ, you will notice, is discovered and is displayed in surprisingly comprehensive terms, that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints—notice what is the breadth and length and height and depth. Well, what's the difference between height and depth? We usually measure spatial objects in terms of breadth, length, length, and either height or depth. But Paul here says four, that you might know the breadth and length and height and depth. Now, when you're doing home Bible studies and you come to something like this, don't allow yourself to spend the rest of the evening pondering why he says breadth and length and height and depth. Let me tell you why. Because what he's saying is, this— immeasurable dimension of the love of God just covers everything and transcends everything. When you go to your commentaries, you can find that the best of men have come up with their own explanations. Matthew Henry says—the reason he says this is because he wants us to understand that it is higher than heaven, that it is deeper than hell, that it is longer than the earth, and it is broader than the sea. Maybe. <laughs> Another says, it is broad enough to encompass all mankind, it is long enough to last for eternity, it is deep enough to reach the utmost degraded sinner, and it is high enough to exalt him to heaven. That's good, too. But we need not really delay on it. You say, well, why are you delaying on it? Well, I'm about to stop delaying on it. (laughs) I think it's simply that Christ's love needs to be seen not only in terms of its length and its breadth— in that it goes around the entire world. But as my friend Sinclair says, he is probably urging the Ephesians to contemplate the depth to which the Son of God stooped and the height to which the Son of God was exalted, having provided in his atonement the ultimate expression of his love for us. I think there's something in that. But at the end of the day, it is simply this magnificent expression of God's comprehensive care. And the last thing to say by way of observation is that comprehensive comprehending of the love of Christ is clearly here a matter of knowing the unknowable. And I pray, he says, that you might know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. If it surpasses knowledge, how can you know it? Well, it's clearly not something that we come to by way of intellect, that we come ultimately by way of rationale, that there is, if you like, no ultimate intellectual road to an awareness of this. If that were the case, then, of course, people who have been given a greater faculty intellectually would have a far greater understanding of the, of the love of God, wouldn't they? And those of us who have got, you know, just a size three brain instead of a size fourteen brain, we we would know very little about it at all. We would have to sit next to somebody like that and say, Tell me about the love of Christ. But forty-one years of pastoral ministry has revealed to me that in some of the tiniest cottages of England, in some of the strangest places, in the company of often godly elderly women, they have taught me things about the love of Christ that clearly is theirs by way of experience and by way of experiment.
1: Please note, Alistair Begg did not just say that we don't use our intellects. What he's saying is it needs to move out of the realm of mere knowledge into the realm of it's mine. That. that It belongs to me because he's given it to me. That's what Alistair Begg is after. Don't skip over the knowledge of God. He made that very clear earlier, and Paul made it emphatically clear throughout two and a half chapters of Ephesians. We must know truths about God, but it doesn't stop there. It must cross the line of mere intellect into the realm of this This is actually real.
2: In other words, they have discovered in the journey of life the dimensions of God's love so that they're able to ponder, for example, with Paul himself when he says, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. I wonder, did he say that with an exclamation mark at the end? Or did he say it with a kind of dot, dot, dot at the end? Did he put down his pen, as it were, when he wrote that phrase, and say, Really? The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me? You see, it is this that he's then praying for his people—that you would know this love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge and to the end that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Up earlier in verse 16, when he prays for them to be strengthened in their inner man, as it were, it is to the end that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. There's a sense in which this is just building on the strength of that. What does it mean to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge? What will the end product be? That you may be filled with all the fullness of God— Paul is going to go on in chapter 5 and say, I want you to be filled with the Spirit, that you will go on being filled with the Spirit. The picture there is of God, willing to fill to capacity with all the gifts and graces that we require in order to be all that he desires for us to be. That's why I love it when uh, Jesus argues from the lesser to the greater when he says, If you, being earthly or evil— know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to those who ask him?
1: So how do we surpass knowledge, not avoid or ignore knowledge, but surpass knowledge so that we can know the love of God? Might I suggest to you contemplatio. That's right. It's a Latin phrase that is often misused these days by an awful lot of movements. From the ragamuffin gospel to the contemplative movement, the Lectio Divina strategy, to just mm, 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 mm. it's basically Christian Buddhism, where you empty your brain, you focus on one thought, God loves me, God loves me, God loves me, you repeat it over and over again, and then you're going to feel it. That's a mystical practice that we reject. But maybe, just maybe, we shouldn't reject the idea of contemplating, thinking on dare I use the word, meditating on a particular attribute of God. And I'm not saying that it should be exclusively love, but that is our current context, that you spend time thinking about it, that you actually let your brain have enough time without distractions of life and your cell phone and the kids and the urgencies of the day thinking about this. That God loves you in Christ. To the same degree of intensity that he loves his son, you are loved by the Father. We can't just go, yeah, okay, yeah, I know that. Let's go. What else? Get into chapter 4 so that we can start getting into the application. Oh, Paul does get into the application. But do you hear his call for you and for me? That we would know the love of God in Christ Jesus. Do you perhaps need to practice some contemplatio so that you can know the love of God? This is Wretched Radio. Permit me to introduce you to Bree and Salvation Domino's pre-born style when one person gets saved they have that burning desire to just make him known the same way that was made known to them and then it's just this domino effect brie currently volunteers at a preborn life center how did she get saved from a friend whose mother got saved at you guessed it a pre-born life center. Why? Because preborn it is indeed about saving babies' lives via $28 ultrasounds, but it is also sharing the gospel so that moms and dads get saved and look at the domino effect. Would you please consider supporting pre-born centers with as many free ultrasounds as you can? $28 for an ultrasound 80% of the time saves a life. Learn more at preborn.org slash wretched.
3: I want to share with you voicemails we receive nearly daily here at Wretched.
2: I can't believe how many times a day I catch myself saying, Todd Creel on Wretched Radio says, I have been transformed by your program.
3: We are grateful to hear the testimonies of our listeners and our viewers. And we want you to also hear the lives that are being impacted by you, our gospel partners. These testimonies aren't about Todd. They're not about Wretched Radio or TV. We wouldn't be able to do the things that we do at Wretched without the support of our gospel partners. So would you prayerfully consider becoming a gospel partner today if you aren't already? Help us to reach the lost all over the world with the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, because ultimately the glory is all his. It's not Wretched's. It's not even yours, but it is your efforts that help make our efforts possible. And all of those efforts are to the praise and glory of God alone. Get complete details right now at wretched.org/donate.
1: Hey, Tomorrow Club supporter, this message from Paul Marty, the director of the Tomorrow Clubs, is just for you.
3: You know, it's been more than 25 years now since my wife Sandy first brought leaders and kids together for the very first Tomorrow Club. Hundreds of thousands of lives have been touched. We're grateful for all the ways you help kids in forsaken places learn to follow Jesus.
1: Thank you for your support of the Tomorrow Club's $30 a month Disciples 30 Kids in Eastern Europe and now in Africa, where Tomorrow Clubs anticipates they could be opening up a 100 new clubs in a year. Would you please consider becoming a Tomorrow Club supporter? Kids clubs that meet in forsaken places, they get loved on, they hear the gospel, they memorize Bible verses, and they're getting saved. To support your own Tomorrow Club, please visit tomorrowclubs.org wretched.
0: Hermeneutics. A vital part of biblical hermeneutics is an understanding of genre. One genre we find in Scripture is Gospel. The Gospels are four complementary narrative accounts of the same story from a different perspective, with a different emphasis. God delivers his timeless truth through a multitude of witnesses.
1: This is Wretched Radio with Todd Friel. Could they have possibly known that they were being that clever? This is Wretched Radio. If you're not familiar with Alistair Begg, he's a preacher outside of... Cincy? Is that... It's Cincy? I get not yes. believe Cincy. Yeah, I think so. That's just a moment of silence. For the Bengal fans, <laughs> <laughs> Live, he lives in pastors the same church in, I don't know what the town is. It's just go to Cincinnati, turn left from the south, right from the north, and you're going to bump into it where he has been pastoring for over 40 years. His radio ministry is called Truth, period. Nope. Truth for life. Oh, how much that hits the bullseye, perhaps especially in our contemporary age where you and I love truth. We love knowledge. We love studying our Bibles. We'll read the geekiest books on theology, on subjects that most of the world doesn't even know exist, let alone have an interest in. We love it. But that isn't where our truth should stop. Our truth is for life. Our truth is for living. Our truth is to be applied. And in the context of Ephesians chapter 3, our truth should do something for us. It It should cause us to think a certain way, most certainly. But it should also cause us to feel a certain way. And I know at the mention of the word feelings, many of us, we get the hives. We, we, we need some sort of Benadryl to just stop the scratching because this just makes us very, very nervous. And I suspect that is because it has been so abused, the emotive wing of evangelical Christianity that has no truth. Let's not be the wing that has all truth and no of, none of the feelings that should accompany it. And the way to get those feelings, according to Ephesians 3 and consistently and repetitiously throughout the entire Bible, is that we know God. We study him. We try to understand how he works, what he does, how he runs the universe, how the redemptive plan has been played out. And when we do, we must, and I mean it, we must let it affect us. And the the way to do that, I think there's a number of ways. You can indeed contemplate slash meditate, think on these things. That is a command. We think on these things. We think about what is good and lovely and worthy of praise, which are all really descriptors of God himself. We think about that. And that will produce joy. That's going to produce assurance. It's going to produce Calm. I'm not kidding. Turn on your news feed. There's plenty to make you agitated and nervous. When you study the love of God and that he has given you that love through his son, Jesus Christ. Okay, I don't really need to worry. God never does anything to his children. He only does things for his children because I am loved in the beloved. It's okay. We'll get through this. Let's let Alistair Beg of Truth for Life help us to get this.
2: As Paul writes these words or dictates these words, he then answers essentially a question. And the question is, how is that going to be? You know, to be strengthened in my inner man in this way, uh, that i'm that, that this might be the reality of our experience as a church to to know that uh, uh, surpass un, uh, the, the, the un, amazing love of christ he he answers that but he doesn't answer it if you like with a lecture he answers it with a hymn and he bursts into song this is not unusual for paul as you know he, he moves directly to doxology from his instruction. He does it at the end of Romans 11. He does it in First Timothy. He does it routinely, and he does it here. And it's instructive for us. That's why this morning, if you like, we are instructed by Jesus in terms of this essential nature of worship in spirit and in truth. And here now, as we come to the end of our time together, uh, we are invited by Paul to enter into the wonder of this— as he lifts his voice in doxology. A doxology is is simply an ascription of praise to God. An ascription of praise to God. And it happens all through the Bible. For example, in the context of the temple in 1 Chronicles 29, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. You're exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor comes from you. You rule over all. In your hand are power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and we praise your glorious name. Because you are, you are, you are, you are. The only legitimate response is to bow before you, And to acknowledge this and to praise you. All the way through the Psalms, you have the same thing. In the hundredth Psalm, you know, O enter then his gates with praise. Why? For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting. His truth endures to all generations. You come on the Lord's Day morning, and uh, we're going to sing together, and we're invited to stand and sing. And we're sad in our spirits— One of our kids is not where we would like her to be. We had a call from the hospital to uh, say that the test came back contrary to our hopes and our expectations. Our, Our elderly relative, whom we thought would be able to sustain life for another little while in their own home, cannot, and everything is up in the air, The last thing in the world that you want on that morning is somebody to stand up and say, Now, let's tell God how we're feeling. Because if we were to tell God honestly how we're feeling, we would actually have to use some of the psalms of lament. We would have to start in Psalm 13, How long, O Lord, will you forget me? Forever? How long must I have sorrow in my heart all the day? So, what is the antidote? Not to give expression to how we're feeling, but to give expression to who God is and what God has done. That is why declaratory songs which have a place where we express how we are, you know, I, I feel this way, or I this, or I that. And there is a place for that. Seldom should we start with that, I would suggest. Far better to start. Praise my soul, the King of heaven. So let's get equilibrium here. I just listened to the news or whatever it is, as the whole world has gone to pot but I just had come into the sanctuary of God. I was envious of the wicked. My foot had almost slipped until I went into the house of God. And then I got it back again. Praise my soul, the King of heaven. To his feet—that means I abase myself—to his feet, your tribute bring. Why? Ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. Who, like thee, his praise should sing. Praise him. Praise him. Praise him. Praise him. Praise the everlasting king.
1: Why? Well, because it's the right response. But it will also do something for you. I would challenge you, if you have had some spiritual blues lately... Go to your car, preferably, because you don't want people to hear this in the house. And find a hymn. Find some song that sings about the truth of God, who he is, and how he has expressed his love toward us, and sing it. And, and you tell me if that doesn't make you feel better. Now, I know that this sounds rather perhaps formulaic or trite, transformed our brand-new TV series, was just watching an episode. Dr. Greg Gifford, who teaches biblical counseling at the Masters U, encouraged a person who was struggling with d- sadness, with anxiety, with uh, emotional issues manifesting themselves in a myriad of ways. He said, I, I want you to pick a song that you like, and I-, and I want you to go to it, and I want you to sing it because it is the right response. And by the way, it is transcendent. It is ethereal because it is the loftiest form of communication that a human being can produce. Music is a uniquely human ability. Communicating through poetry is the highest form of prose that we have. And the subject of God is the loftiest thought we can have. You put those three together and you are doing something transcendent. And it should be in response to truth about God. And the effect of singing those truths back to God will produce a little something in you called joy. Do you need some of that today? Until tomorrow, go serve your king.